Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. And this episode, we are looking at food insecurity and food waste, as well as efforts to address them. So I think it's going to be an exciting episode. We did our first, I would say, ambitious challenge in a while. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you mean, you mean dumpster diving? (laughs) (laughs) Where we, we think that maybe I got pink eye? No. (laughs) My, my eye just like reacted to some eye makeup, but it happened to be like around the same time. And you were like, Kyla, maybe you got pink eye. (laughs) (laughs) No, we were not terribly successful at dumpster diving, but um, it was an experience that I learned from, I guess. Okay. Okay. Actually, I know that we have a lot to get through, but have you ever dumpster dove before? No. So you've never like rescued anything from a dumpster? No, but I was having like panic attacks all week before we tried it, and it turned out it was actually fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I do get the sense that you were like a little bit like anxious about it. I think maybe it was like, for me, it wasn't so bad because uh, when I was a kid, my parents would take us like dumpster diving huh. all the time, and like, and my grandma like still does it. Did you ever like get good stuff? I don't remember, but I know my grandma like loves it. So, but her dump doesn't like people rummaging through the dump anymore. So they've set up what they call a share shed. Nice. Yeah. So so, so if you're dropping stuff off at the dump and you're like, oh, this is garbage, but it's actually still pretty good. You can leave it in the share shed and then other people can like rummage through that. Mm. Yeah. No, I don't know. I don't know what it is about myself that made me so nervous to do it. Because like, really, it's just sort of like walking up to dumpsters, opening it, looking to see if there's something in it and then like walking to the next one. (laughs) I don't know. I think maybe I just have this inherent like desire to follow like authority <laughs> not to break rules <laughs> it's the same reason i don't speed <laughs> it's where you and robbie uh one of our frequent guests butt heads the most yeah, i think just... <laughs> he's like fuck authority and like, you're like why don't you write a petition <laughs> <laughs> yeah whereas i don't know i i've worked in a lot of like retail settings so mm. I've, I've rescued a lot of things from the dump I have rescued things on their way to the dumpster a lot (laughs) where I'm like, this is fine. There's this like really stressful thing you have to do when you're, especially if you're like, if you're like a warehouse manager where you have to throw away things that are perfectly good, but store policy in a lot of cases is to destroy them before you throw them away. So people aren't tempted to like rummage through your trash. So if you have a whole bunch of calendars from last year Mm -hmm. or notebooks that are out of season or whatever you have to like tear them up I have a hard time doing that which is why I don't do it anymore (laughs) there was a whole basically a whole palette of product we had to throw away just because it wasn't selling anymore and it'd been in the shop for so long and I went through all of it and I organized it into like metals and glasses and plastics and I brought them all to the recycling center in Vancouver so but that was like at my own expense, on my own time, the store doesn't like pay you to recycle everything like that. Mm. So, and it cost me money because I had to rent an Evo to do it. But I just was like, I cannot throw all of this perfectly good recyclable stuff into the garbage. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's, um, I mean, we'll talk about freaganism a little bit later in the episode, but that's kind of like the general idea that drives dumpster diving by freegans. Uh, so that's sort of desire not to waste. So I think what we're going to do with this episode is talk a little bit about, first of all, the problem of food insecurity. Um, So the harms when people don't have enough food, you know, what causes food insecurity, things like that. Then we'll talk about food waste, because those two things are inextricably linked. You know, we have 
we produce enough food to feed everybody in the world right now. Um, and so food waste and food insecurity are inherently tied. And then after that, we'll talk about some forms of resistance. Um, so different ways that individuals, communities, and even legislatures in some cases are trying to push back against this kind of dual problem of food insecurity and food waste. And freeganism is one of them. So we'll talk a little bit more about dumpster diving at the end. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's get started with food insecurity. Food insecurity, it's pretty straightforward concept. It's a lack of consistent access to enough food for everybody in a household in order to live an active and healthy life. I don't know if this is too personal a question, Kyla, but have you ever been food insecure? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, like when I was really young, my parents were quite poor. Mm. So my parents uh, would go to the food bank pretty often. And I think there was a few times where my parents would like feed my brother and I, but they wouldn't eat themselves. Like there was a point where I had to go live with my grandma for a while because my parents just couldn't afford to feed me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, for sure. I personally haven't been, but my dad um, definitely was growing up. He'd tell stories of like the family, like it was payday. So they'd been able to go to like KFC and this was a hugely special thing. And his like his sister dropped the money at some point and was like really scared to come back home. So I know for a lot of families, like food insecurity really is like people are very much at the edge of that, like at any given moment. Um, so definitely a big part of society. So food insecurity, as, as you already mentioned, Kyla, it forces people to make really difficult decisions. Um, and one of those is, yeah, like a lot of times parents um, in situations of food insecurity will choose to feed their children instead of themselves. I mean, I can say for a fact that if I suddenly lost my job and I had to choose between <laughs> feeding myself or my kittens, my kittens would get food. So <laughs> absolutely. So or their pet, their pet children. As the case may be. Um, but there's also oftentimes choices between food and other kinds of necessities. So um, one example, there was a study that Feeding America did, um, which is sort of the big network of food, like anti-hunger agencies in the United States. And they found that 66% of people who used food banks reported choosing between food and medical care, which is pretty fucked up. Oh, the United States just <laughs> like, just, just provide medical care. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it is like there are variants of that in Canada too. Yes, if you're food true. insecure, if, if you don't, if you're, you know, your income is very low and you're trying to make decisions, you might end up buying food instead of insulin. Um which is a whole vicious cycle. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so food and medicine, that's one trade-off. Oftentimes, um, so this study found that 69% of people had to decide between food and utilities, 67% between food and transportation costs. People, you know, can't afford to have cars or bus passes or whatever. And 57% uh, have made choices between food and housing. And I think uh, anybody who has tried to find housing in a city in Canada knows exactly what that feeling is like. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> the rent is too damn high. Oh. In addition to that, um, there are a lot of sort of complicated coping strategies that people use when they're food insecure. Um, so in the same study, Feeding America found that about half received help from friends. 40% had watered down food and drinks in order to sort of make food and drink last longer. 80% had purchased uh, unhealthy food because it was more inexpensive. 35% sold or pawned personal property. 23% grew food in a garden, which I kind of think is nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. They found that 55% um, of households had used at least three of these different coping strategies. So to sort of give a sense of when people are in situations of food insecurity, like... 
how stressful and complicated um, your life becomes. So um, food insecurity, um, one reason to care about it, in addition to like the inherent <laughs> desire to feed people, <laughs> is that food insecurity has a negative impact on health and childhood development. There's this idea that hunger has a toxic effect um, because it is linked to a bunch of different um, negative health outcomes. Um, so one of those is obesity, which seems sort of like um, might seem counterintuitive, but except when you realize that like fatty, unnutritious food is the cheapest. Well, and also like if you're used to not having enough food when you do have food in front of you, mm -hmm. like I I have a hard time not finishing every single thing on my plate just yeah. because like that early childhood experience where it was like every morsel of food on your plate is valuable. So now like that I am able to eat as much as I want, really, I could see how that mentality might cause problems. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I mean, for similar reasons, there's a link between food insecurity and a lot of chronic diseases like high blood pressure. There are also links to all kinds of other health issues, including asthma. It's kind of difficult to, to sort of pull apart what's causing it sometimes, though, because food insecurity is also so closely tied to economic insecurity, you know, so it can be difficult to determine what's causing these outcomes, but <laughs> it's all just a cluster of bad. You know? <laughs> Hunger also affects mental health, and it can cause things like depression, anxiety, and even PTSD, which I was surprised to read. There was a study uh, that found uh, mothers with school-aged children who face severe hunger are 56% more likely to have PTSD and 53% uh, more likely to have severe depression. So, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, that kind of makes sense to me, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, God. Being a parent must be so stressful. <laughs> I'm glad I can't afford it. <laughs> but also, like, having um, having enough money, like, it just improves your mental health so much oh yes so, <laughs> i don't know i that stat to me was staggering and also children who are have experienced hunger there's um some studies linking that to sort of long-run um development of the child and it, including um children that have experienced hunger they're they're much less likely to finish school afterwards so food food insecurity is like really bad for you <laughs> Okay, so who is who is food insecure? That's sort of another question we might want to ask. Under nutrition, it's a global problem. It affects about 10% of people around the world. And that includes, you know, these are at different scales depending on, you know, which country you're in. Wealthier countries, um, there's a big problem with food insecurity, but it tends to be less acute than um, malnutrition in um, countries where there's more extreme poverty. Just sort of makes sense. But food insecurity does affect um, countries around the world. And uh, it tends to affect certain populations disproportionately. So in Canada, for example, households with children and especially single parent families, um, especially single female parent families, <laughs> are disproportionately uh, likely to be food insecure. This, I think, is fairly intuitive, but households with lower incomes um, and those that are on government assistance programs tend to be more food insecure. And that's largely just because, uh, you know, these social assistance programs are nowhere near adequate to be able to cover, you know, rent and other basic necessities. So that's a problem that we should be looking at solving. Individuals without post-secondary education are more likely to, um, to experience food insecurity, more likely to experience food insecurity if you are Indigenous or are a recent immigrant. Um, there is a difference, though, once, um, once recent um, newcomers have been in Canada for a while, that difference sort of goes away. 
Renters much more likely to be food insecure than homeowners. <laughs> what? <laughs> and people living in cities. So there are all kinds of, uh, you know, demographic differences. Um, one really important one is racial disparities. They hugely affect food insecurity. So 21% of black individuals in the United States um, are projected to experience food insecurity this year compared to just 11% of white individuals. So that's a huge difference. And food insecurity here is extremely high in Canada's north. 57% of households in Nunavut are food insecure. I mean, none of it doesn't have any roads, and they're probably frozen half the year, so... Yeah. <laughs> but also, I mean, the population up there, I think, is mostly Indigenous, and the government here doesn't really... Yeah, so there's a lot of there's a lot of poverty, um, and at the same time, food is like three times more expensive than it is in the rest of Canada, because it is more expensive to ship. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I just thought that was staggering. More than half of the population there is food insecure. Well, and they're also in Iqaluit. They don't have any water right now because they're they have. That's haven't... right. I forgot about that. Yeah, because there was like a <laughs> gas leak, and so they're like trucking bottles of water up there. Hey, none of it. Shout out. <laughs> <laughs> we see you. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's one of the starkest things I can think of in terms of how far we have to go for reconciliation. But yeah, I mean. <laughs> If we can't get water to people in Canada, then I'm sure food, like, I feel like water comes before food and... Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can go a little longer without food than you can without water, although... Nobody in a wealthy society like Canada should be either food or water insecure. No, That's my position. Yeah. I would would agree with you. (laughs) But yeah, the national rate of food insecurity was 13% compared to the 57% in Nunavut. So just, uh, I just thought that was important context. 13% is still pretty high. Yeah. Uh, COVID. COVID affected food insecurity. So both Canada and the United States in 2019 had been making progress towards reducing food insecurity. As far as I was able to understand it, food insecurity kind of went up uh, during the financial crisis, and then it had been slowly going down since 2015. But the pandemic obviously caused huge economic disruption, and it created pressure on millions of individuals, both in Canada and the United States. So the big difference between the two countries is public policy. For all, you could criticize many things about the Canadian government's COVID response. The federal government did establish uh, a generous monthly financial benefit um, that it affected a lot of individuals and it provided stability during the crisis. And in the United States, benefits were a lot more limited. And the differences are really clear. In the United States, 45 million people were food insecure in 2020. And that was an increase of 10 million people. Uh, So 10 million more people were food insecure in 2020 compared to 2019. And food banks across the states distributed 50% more food in 2020 than they did in 2019. So there was a huge jump, not only in the number of people that were food insecure, but also the severity of food insecurity. So how many people needed to go How often do people need to go to food banks? I remember seeing news stories about people like lining up around the blocks for for food banks in the United States. And it just looked like something out of what, like Cold War era Russia or something, you know? Yeah, I I thought the most interesting image of that that I saw anyway was um, some of the food, the food banks were um, had drive through options. And there was this lineup that must have been at least a mile long that somebody had gotten an aerial photo, like photo of. So these are people that presumably weren't, you know, in dire straits before the pandemic, um, because they were able to afford cars. 
but that are now sort of lining up for for food. Well, it's that it's that yeah. issue of like everybody living paycheck to paycheck, and then suddenly you have this global event happen yes. where it's like, oh, you're not getting your paychecks anymore. Like before, you could buy your food and you could like maybe you treat yourself like oh i go to the movies you know every two weeks or whatever like you're not suffering financially but then suddenly that paycheck is gone and it's not mm-hmm. like i mean i don't know about you but i certainly don't have six months worth of savings right now no that i could fall certainly back certainly not at the rent levels in cities yeah so like <laughs> like if i lost my job mm-hmm. i would i would be food insecure very very quickly yeah so there was a difference uh canada i was surprised to learn actually um Hunger decreased in 2020, which I would not have expected, but um, it was because of the CERB and um, the wage subsidy. Well, yeah, because like they're paying, uh, they were paying more than a full time minimum wage job, which is just such a slap in the face. Like, <laughs> like the the living wage in Vancouver, it was announced just like yesterday, the day before, that it went up from nineteen dollars an hour to twenty one dollars an hour. So mm. now, if you if you want to live comfortably in metro vancouver you need to be making 21 dollars an hour but the minimum wage in bc is 15 dollars and 20 cents an hour so of yeah so, so like, <laughs> it makes sense to me that somebody making minimum wage suddenly losing their job and then getting the two thousand dollar a month benefits from the government would have more money to spend on food yeah and also um because of the wage subsidy people that might have been laid off weren't necessarily laid off because the government was cost sharing with employers. Um, I think it was like 75% government, 25% employer. So those two things together um, really did a good job in stabilizing and, um, and actually reducing the rate of hunger across the country, which I think is pretty remarkable and evidence that universal basic income might be a great idea. (laughs) (laughs) But unfortunately, um, you know, CERB ended, it was replaced with some other programs, but they weren't as wide ranging. And they're actually ending, I think they're ending really soon, Mm -hmm. Um, like this week or or this month or something. I saw an email come through. Yeah, yeah. So who knows what's going to happen. But already by March 2021, um, food bank visits had increased uh, 19% over 2019 levels. So at the beginning of the pandemic, when you have this sort of generous government response coming through, hunger decreases. But now that those responses are tapering off, we're seeing that it's actually higher than it was in 2019, which is unfortunate. What causes food insecurity? So when you're talking about a global context, food insecurity, um, it can be caused sometimes by food shortages. So conflict and drought can oftentimes be a big cause of food insecurity. But food insecurity generally is not caused by food shortages, actually. It's generally caused by a lack of food because of how we distribute food in our society, which is primarily through capitalism. You know, it's through this sort of uh, market exchange. And so food insecurity, for that reason, is caused by a range of socioeconomic factors. So poverty is the big one. You know, if you can't afford food, it makes it really difficult to get it. Unemployment and precarious work, as well as low wages, can be sort of things related to that. One big note is that it's it's not just insufficient income, it's also those disruptions in income that can cause food insecurity. As you mentioned, people being paycheck to paycheck, and maybe they lose their job and they're food insecure until they find a new one. Yeah, and it could be like someone who doesn't ever think they would lose their job. But mm-hmm. like when the pandemic hit, I was working three different jobs in three different sectors and they all shut down. So I was working in the film industry, I was working in tourism, and I was working in retail. And it's like, oh, you know, maybe one of – and they were all jobs that were very secure before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I was never really worried about like, 
oh, like, I'm gonna lose my paycheck soon. That was never a thought that occurred to me, because even if one of those places shut down, which seemed very un Yeah, you thought you me, had two backup Yeah, plans. <laughs> yeah. So that pandemic, like, I, it just slammed people who didn't expect to be slammed. Like, people who've been working in the hotel industry, and they've been at the same hotel for, like, 30 years, suddenly got laid off, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, a lot of the companies that are hiring back are now hiring back precarious workers instead yes. of the... But that's, time jobs they had before. But so we're, fuck seeing, it. we're seeing a pushback with this, what they're calling the great resignation. And it's like, fuck that, you know? Like, <laughs> maybe try hiring back employees at places, like in wage, at wages that are fair. But then, of course, you get the argument where it's like, well, these smaller businesses actually can't afford that. So who's going to come out victorious of this pandemic? And it's like, oh, all of the really big companies that can afford to, like Amazon's raising their wages. And it's like, great, what we need is more people working for Amazon. <laughs> They'll raise their wages just in time for, you know, labor to be not so scarce and then (laughs) crush unionization efforts and lower them again. (laughs) What a cool system we live in. (laughs) Um, But um, the sort of dual side of that, it's not necessarily just the income side. It's also the high cost of living, um, which sounds like a conservative talking point. But what I'm referring to here is how expensive housing is, how expensive food is in some contexts. I mean, we talked about Canada's North. This is like the prime example of that. Food insecurity there does have to do with poverty, but it's mostly because food is like... And housing, they're both incredibly expensive. Trying to get an apartment in Nunavut, that was another thing I learned about recently. It's extremely expensive and it's basically like a monopoly, so... Oh, like one company owns all of the rentals? A lot of the rentals, yeah. and gross. They don't seem like very good landlords, uh, so... I don't know many landlords who seem like very good landlords. <laughs> Maybe if you own your own property and you're, like, dealing with the one person who owns that one house, but... Yes, yeah. Rental companies, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so food deserts, that's another cause of food insecurity. Specifically, lack of nutritious food can be caused by um, how those socioeconomic factors um, play out in terms of the supply of food, right? So food deserts, they're basically... Actually, have you heard of food deserts before? Do you want to try to... Um, I have been thinking a lot more about them lately because I know that, thank you, climate change, uh, Alberta is like probably going to become a food desert very quickly because their water source comes from the glaciers in BC. So once the glaciers have all melted, which they're doing at a very rapid pace, then suddenly the water is going to dry up in Alberta and then Alberta won't have any way of growing food and they will them and Saskatchewan and maybe Manitoba even because they're all fed by glaciers are going to become places where food no longer grows because there's no water there. Okay, so yes, that is a problem. That is not what the term food deserts refers to. Okay. But, <laughs> but leave that in because it's a really important aspect of the problem. <laughs> okay, no, I love being corrected. I'm about to learn something. Yeah, so food deserts, the term is actually like more of a metaphor. It's um, neighborhoods or other geographic areas where residents can't access healthy and affordable um, food options. Because there's actually just an absence of grocery stores in the oh, area. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they're they're most commonly found in racialized communities and low-income areas. When, it's like the only grocery store is the dollar store. Yeah. Yeah. Or there's convenience stores where oftentimes um, produce like is sometimes sold, but it'll be marked up at these like really high rates. I do remember reading mm-hmm. a really long article about this like a few years ago. I'll try and find it and share it. But yes, yeah. I do remember that. And like Walmart is like maybe... 
a, another close-ish area, but they have to drive to it. And also Walmart isn't the best place to get healthy food because they mark down all of their, like, crap dinners. Like, oh, yes. you can get, like, these burgers for, like, a dollar <laughs> and, like, lettuce for four dollars. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So um, wealthy districts in America have three times as many supermarkets as poor districts. And I have I see no reason to think that that would be any different in Canada. You know, really, your income level in the neighborhood you can afford to live in drives your whether you have access to um, healthy food. Especially if you can't afford to own a vehicle, especially in Canada, the United States, where public transportation sucks. You have, and you can't like if you can't drive to the grocery store, you're going to walk to the closest place. And if you're poor, you're also probably time poor. Yes. So you don't have time to go like to that far away grocery store and buy all of the expensive fancy lettuce. Yeah, and it's not just nutritious food either. A lot of times um, being in a food desert means that it's really hard to get like culturally appropriate food. Um, it can be really difficult to get food that meets certain dietary restrictions. You know, if people are celiac or if people have diabetes, it can be very difficult to get food that's, you know, good and healthful for them. And also like within these food deserts, even if you can get healthy food, even if it's available, it's more expensive than unhealthy foods, and it's more expensive than healthy food would be in a wealthier neighborhood, which Ooh. is kind of a fucked up paradox. And healthy food takes longer to make. It's a lot easier to get those microwave dinners and feed the whole family in 30 seconds than it is to, like... Yeah, if you're, like, working three jobs, yeah. And you have two kids. <laughs> yeah, because the minimum wage is seven eighty or whatever it is in the States. Oh, my yeah. God, yeah. Yeah. As a result of that, um, death rates from diabetes, um, it's been found, are twice as high in food deserts compared to other communities. So this has a real effect on, um, you know, people's health and the way they're living their lives. We'll sort of start to transition now. Um, so I would argue that food waste, and I think this is fairly straightforward, food waste is an important cause of food insecurity. Um, so since food insecurity is basically a problem in how we allocate food, it's not that we actually lack food. Food waste represents a failure of the system that we're living under to effectively and equitably distribute food. So just to give you an example of this, it's estimated that reducing food waste by 15% could feed more than 25 million Americans every year. So that's almost the entire population of Canada. <laughs> Globally, one third of all food produced is wasted. And that um, accounts for approximately a trillion dollars in food wasted every year around the world. If we solved food waste, if we stopped wasting 33% of our food, I feel like that would also solve climate change. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a bit. But yes, the short answer is yes, it would. Holy shit. <laughs> One thing that I found interesting when I was reading is there's actually two different terms for food waste. So food waste typically refers just to what happens with food once it gets to stores or restaurants. And so it's what happens at the store, what happens in the restaurant, what happens at your house. And the term for stuff that happens before that is actually food loss. So if it happens at the farm while it's being transported, that's food loss. I'm going to just refer to both as food waste because I think that's easier. Um, well, I think but... a lot of food loss is probably like just food waste as well like yeah it, i mean it's the same thing it's just two different terms yeah exactly yeah. i'm sure that a lot of the lost food could be recouped by just better mm -hmm. practices definitely it could yeah but it, for whatever reason um the experts distinguish them and they're actually like if they're measuring those two things they'll have like an index for each so that makes sense to me yeah 75 percent of food waste happens at three different points in the food chain 
the top source of food waste is during the production phase. So this is food that you lose because pests eat the crops or food that you lose because um, you weren't able to harvest it or because there was a heat wave and everything died, you know, stuff like that. So that's the biggest source of, or the biggest point in the process where food waste happens. About 500 million tons are wasted there. The second biggest is uh, during post-harvest, so when it's being handled, transported, and stored. Um, and in that, a uh, big source of it is the storage. You know, there's inadequate storage in a lot of cases. And in developing countries, that's a particularly big problem. And then the third one is uh, during the consumption phase. So this is when it's at the grocery store and when it's in your home and when it's at a restaurant. And we've talked about that a little bit before when we mm -hmm. did our meal planning, uh, meal kits, meal kits episode. Yes. Yeah, but I'm excited to dive deeper into this. Yeah, yeah. So um, 350 tons or about that amount are what's wasted during those last two. So during storage and transport or, you know, at the end of the process. Food waste is higher in wealthier countries, it's, you know, sort of intuitive, but um, in the United States, uh, up to 40% of all food produced goes uneaten. Um, and one quick note of that um, is that 95% of that ends up in landfills. So we're going to talk a little bit <laughs> about the environment and food waste later, but think about, like, most of it is not going back into, you know, composting or being fed to animals. Some of it is, but a lot of it's going to landfills and that's a problem. When you say some of it, you mean 5% of it. Well, this is like in, this is in the States and I'm not sure it might just refer to the end of the chain because I think a lot more of it gets composted or um, turned into animal feed when it happens on a farm. That makes sense. Or when it even, even when it's like being transported and stored. So a lot of food waste also is avoidable. Um, there's an estimate that more than 60% of the food that Canadians throw out could have been eaten. So being able to sort of like in our own personal lives extend the life of our food or, you know, use less food, we could really make a big impact. And why does that matter? Well, A, because it's linked to food insecurity. If we waste less food, there's more food for everybody else. But secondly, um, the food waste has a big environmental impact. So producing food, it requires resources. It requires energy, land, pesticides, water. That's a lot of stuff that's going into making the food that we need. Um, and so wasted food is really just an unnecessary waste of all of those resources, right? I think we had talked in a previous podcast about how like something like a third of all land on Earth is devoted to agriculture. Yeah, that might have come up during the Meal Kits episode as well. Although I feel like that's something we've talked about in multiple episodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it came up in our vegetarianism episode. Yeah. But at any rate, that's a huge amount of land. And so if you think about, like, a third of all food being wasted, like, you know, that's <laughs> one-ninth of the planet we could just take back, you know? <laughs> Producing food also creates environmental impacts. So in addition to the resources that it uses, it also emits greenhouse gas emissions, it also um, creates water and air pollution. And again, if we weren't wasting food, we wouldn't need to cause as many of those environmental impacts. Uh, and just to give you some context here, the global food system accounts for up to 30% of greenhouse gas emissions. So this is a really big fucking deal. You know, if we could cut into that, we could make a huge dent in our emissions. Food waste, it, it also creates waste when it's disposed of in landfills. So you know, you could, even if you are, like, wasting the same amount of food, by just composting it, you're, you're 
making the harm a little bit less. Well, because when it goes to landfill, it makes methane, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And that's like the worst greenhouse gas. Everyone talks about carbon dioxide, but like yeah. methane. It, <laughs> it's 25% more potent than carbon dioxide. So we really don't want to be producing methane. You know, for all of those reasons, food waste is responsible for an estimated 8% of global emissions. That sounds like a small number, but like it's a pretty big chunk if we were able to sort of take that away because we really don't need to be wasting food. There's no actual reason for it. And so that's why um, Project Drawdown, which is a climate initiative, um, it's identified reducing food waste as the single most effective thing that individuals can do to address climate change. So it's a really big deal. Eating a plant-based diet is very close in terms of their estimated impact, but food waste is technically first, and you could do both at the same time. So So what causes food waste? Retail food waste is caused by a few different things. Uh, One of them, this is something that people have probably heard of because there was the ugly fruit campaigns that have been happening recently. So the rejection of produce that doesn't meet visual quality standards, you know, that red pepper that's slightly bumpy looking, um, things like that. That's one reason that food will be thrown out at retail. Sometimes it's just about inadequate storage. So things go off or things get damaged either in the store or when it's being shipped. Oversupply, we had talked about this, you know, um, stores want to create those big displays uh, that have abundant food, even though we learned in that waste-free world episode that that doesn't even fucking work. (laughs) (laughs) So they're oversupply and then have to get rid of the food afterwards. And also um, when things uh, exceed those best buy standards, which aren't about food safety, but are just about food quality, um, grocery stores will pull them from the shelves and that's another source of food waste. Another cause of food waste is just once you have those things that cause a food to be withdrawn from a store, just barriers to getting that food into the hands of somebody else that could use it. So if you don't have networks to redistribute food through um, food rescue organizations, we're going to talk to a food rescue organization in a future episode. So you'll hear that. But that can lead to food being wasted as well. So in restaurants, food waste is caused by, um, you know, some sort of straightforward things you'd think of. Sometimes food will be prepared but not served. So if um, a restaurant is really trying to get ready for a rush and maybe it doesn't happen. Or a surplus inventory of ingredients. So maybe they purchased a bunch of food and, you know, for the same reason didn't use it. Um, Or it can sometimes be inadequate storage. In homes, food waste is generally you know, people forget about it or they see the best by date and think that means it's gone bad and throw it out. We'll talk a little bit more about how to reduce your personal food waste in a bit. But first, let's talk about France. (laughs) Why don't you start? Because it sounded like you were excited. I mean, I just love the idea that it's against the law in France to for grocery stores to waste food, right? It super duper is. So in 2016, France passed a law that bans supermarkets from destroying unsold food products. So they're instead required to use other strategies and they're encouraged to donate it. But they can also do things like um, converting their food to animal feed if they've got like an arrangement with a farm or they can compost it. And that still would be um, within the law. And if supermarkets do destroy food and they get caught, uh, they get fined for it. So there's an actual penalty. Italy has a similar regulation, but they don't actually penalize um, companies. So it's not really so much banning it as it is trying to incentivize. Um, 
So they they try to make it easier for stores to donate unsold food. Um, and one of the ways that they do that is actually just allowing grocery stores to donate food that's past its best buy date. So other countries have tried to do they have tried to sort of incentivize the other side of the system where they're they're funding organizations that rescue food and bring it to organizations that serve the food insecure. So that's another approach. I still think the French approach is the best, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, solving a problem at the source is often, like, I mean, you get this in the mental health talks all the time, where it's like, well, you know, having suicide prevention hotlines are great, but also maybe we should address the root problems of mental health, which are like, food insecurity <laughs> and poverty and... <laughs> What? You're saying puppy therapy isn't the only solution? <laughs> I mean, it's definitely one of them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what about as individuals? Um, here are some strategies to reduce personal food waste. I got these from an organization called Love Food Hate Waste. And there are three main strategies. Their first one is fairly straightforward but important. Plan your grocery trips. So have a meal plan. Align it with your grocery shop. <laughs> Go to the store. <laughs> it's true. I bought on impulse the other day. I bought like a just a a comically oversized sweet potato because I'd never seen a sweet potato that big, and I thought <laughs> it was funny. But then I now I have the sweet potato, and I've cooked some of it. But I'm like, I have to quickly cook the rest of it. I, I do not plan. <laughs> I just bought because I thought it was funny, and now I'm like, oh, quick, cook it before it goes bad. <laughs> <laughs> So don't do that. I've been having sweet potatoes. sweet potatoes for weeks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do like sweet potato, but I was like, what are we gonna... It's a lot of sweet potato. Yeah. Their second strategy is to learn to use more of the food that you have. Um, so they've got a few strategies under this. Um, one is uh, reevaluating those Best Buy dates. Uh, because they refer to quality, when it's past the Best Buy date does not necessarily mean that food's unsafe. So you can go by other cues to tell whether you can still keep using that food. There are also ways to revive food that is a little bit stale, burned, overcooked, or wilted. So Make it into stew. Make it into stew, yeah. <laughs> um, so they've got a bunch of strategies on their website for that, which I thought were really helpful. They've also got suggest that you store food more effectively. One tip that I learned recently is that you can actually keep lemons fresher for longer by storing them in water. What? I did not know that. Oh my god, I've wasted so many lemons. <laughs> no, they always dry out. Um, oh, well, I'm like... I like to have, like, a slice of lemon with, like, hot water and honey, but I don't like to have it every day, mm -hmm. and then it's like, oh, no, this le lemons do not last very long. You know what's a fun pro tip on that tip? Oh, tell me. When you do that, um, you can add the water from the lemons to lemonade if it's only been a couple days. Wow. So you could, like, always have lemonade. I could just, just constantly. always have lemonade. Lemons are good for you. Yep. Yeah, another um, suggestion they have under this uh, strategy of storing food more effectively is you can save perishable food by freezing or drying it in a lot of cases. So yeah, there's um, a tons of tip, a ton of tips on Love Food Hate Waste's website. So if you're looking for more strategies for how you can reduce food waste, uh, go to there. Oh, and my friend's aunt wrote a best-selling cookbook about how to use food scraps. So mm. yeah, I'll, I don't remember the name of it, but I'll plug it on like Twitter and our website because she's very proud of her aunt, and it looks like a rad cookbook. So that's amazing. Mm -hmm. So there are also community responses to food waste. In addition to what individuals and governments can do, there are also um, sort of mutual aid strategies. 
Um, so one is something called community fridges. Have you ever used a community fridge? No, but I like the sound of it. Yeah. Um, I've used one, actually. When I was moving out of Ottawa, um, I wanted to know sort of what to do with a few condiments that I had bought but never opened. And uh, you can use a community fridge for that. They're basically what they sound like. It's a fridge that's in a public area. And oftentimes there will be shelves, too, for stuff that doesn't need to go in the fridge. Um, and you can donate food as long as it's unopened and it's fresh. And anyone can also take what they need from the community fridge. So it's sort of a take one, leave one kind of system. And they're really easy to set up. Uh, there's one um, outside my old neighborhood near Ottawa. It doesn't look like anything fancy. It's just a fridge, a shelf, and then there's a little tent over top of it. And Ottawa gets real wet weather. So like, <laughs> if that's all you need, then that's great. There's a, an organization that I found called Fridge. <laughs> ah, that is, I feel like they could have done a better job. <laughs> <laughs> So Fridge, it, it like offers maps for community fridges. And also if you want to set one up in your community, they've got a bunch of resources for that. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, the next community strategy that I identified is food rescue. So these are groups that work with businesses to deliver surplus food to food agencies. They're kind of like the middleman between the grocery store and the food bank. And then the third community strategy that I identified is freeganism. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. The, uh, the practice of... Only, I think the, okay, well, you're probably going to talk about it, but I think the idea of the name freegan means that these folks don't eat meat unless it was going to go to waste. Yeah. Um, so at the risk of making us sound even older than I already felt in our last episode, <laughs> um, I've been rewatching Seinfeld, which, by the way, in many ways did not hold up. <laughs> but I think uh, Kramer is just freegan, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I never really watched Seinfeld, but Kramer was everyone's favorite character, I hope. Yes. And he was just a mooch. He just would come in and eat free everything for everybody. Yep, and if there was a way to not pay for something, he was on that strategy. <laughs> that is the life philosophy of a freegan. Um, so it's based on um, minimum participation in capitalism, as well as limited consumption of capitalist resources. That's the basic idea. Uh, I learned some things about freeganism. So it's a term that was coined in the 90s, which feels right. <laughs> that has truthiness to it. Um, but it's actually based on a similar movement um, from the 1960s called the Diggers. This was a community anarchist group that was based in San Francisco. They sound super rad. Their aim was basically to create a mini society free from money and capitalism. They were like a theater, but they also set up like these community kitchens and stuff. And it was all aiming to not be part of capitalist exchange. Um, and that's really Freegan's, their approach um, is that way as well. I also think it's somewhat similar to China's lying flat movement. Did you hear anything about that? No, what's that? Um, it's super censored now, but um, basically the big like promise that the Chinese government has made for legitimacy is like, we'll make you economically more prosperous if you sort of like don't want democracy and stuff you oh. know and so the lying flat movement is this is this kind of a bit of a protest against that it's this idea that people aren't going to work that hard they're not going to buy this like narrative of really having consumerist gains and having that be the way that you sort of value society so the idea is you lie flat you work as, as little as possible freeganism has a lot of elements of that but it sort of takes it uh, much wider so Freegans um, believe that capitalism creates overproduction. They're not wrong there. That's empirically <laughs> true. Uh, 
Um, and they try to refrain from participating in capitalism as much as possible. So they structure their lives around four core um, goals. So one of them is waste minimization and reclamation. So trying to waste as little as you can and trying to reclaim waste when you can, dumpster diving. Eco-friendly transportation, so using the bus, carpooling, walking, walking <laughs> biking. <laughs> if you can bike um, using a reclaimed bike, that's hitting two at once. <laughs> uh, rent-free housing, so squatting is often a freaking approach. And also working less um, or volunteering instead of working. And so freegans attempt to meet their basic needs without buying things as much as they possibly can. And that includes for food, they might forage, dumpster dive, use community gardens, use community fridges, volunteering rather than working, and squatting instead of renting. Like anything else, freeganism is a continuum. Some people will practice it just casually. You know, maybe they'll go dumpster diving once in a little while. Maybe they'll try to forage um, for the things that they can forage for. But other people will try to withdraw from capitalism immediately or completely. And that can sometimes mean like living in a remote area on like their own little tiny farm. You know, it really depends. Um, but let's talk about dumpster diving, <laughs> <laughs> which is one freeganism strategy. Yeah, uh, we did that. We went dumpster diving. It went, I guess, well, we didn't really find anything so <laughs> it was it was a success for reasons other than that though it was a good yeah, you experience conquer, you conquered an anxiety i sure did yeah a lot of grocery stores i've heard will throw coffee grounds or even bleach on perfectly good food that they're throwing away to discourage people from going into their dumpsters why are they not composting the coffee grounds i know that's not the thing i should have <laughs> taken from that but <laughs> yeah so, I mean, I did do some research because, uh, like Kristen, I was a little nervous to go rummaging through dumpsters. Uh, so I looked it up, and in Canada, it's legal. Uh, trash is considered public domain. If you throw it away, you can't. Did that make me less nervous when the cops were around us? No. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a lot of, we, there was like a whole squadron in one, near one of the dumpsters we were looking in. <laughs> But yeah, anyways, it's not illegal. They could have told us to move off, but they couldn't have, like, actually done anything to us. It's only really a problem if you're trespassing on private property, if there's a sign up, if the dumpster's locked and you break the lock. So, you know, I guess don't do those things. Um, but the number one thing I would say if you're going to go dumpster driving is don't climb into a compactor. It's no. Not, it's not worth your life, that that wilted lettuce. It's not worth it. Don't do it. <laughs> Um, I did find some pretty good tips at dumpsterdiving360.com. Nice. So, yeah, it's <laughs> like that one dental. <laughs> I <laughs> I find the best Thank you. Uh, so the rules that they have for diving. Um, Wait, I'm sorry. Um, do you think the 360 refers to like they do it 360 days of the year? And if so, what days do they take off? Do you think? I don't know. I know that there's like a UBI website that also is like 360.com. So I don't know if that's like a thing. Mm. If you guys know what that means, tell us. <laughs> Maybe it's like degrees. I don't know. Anyway. I, yeah. I, I, Sorry. I interrupted I, you for the dumbest aside. No, that's okay. I also was like, why are there two like organizations about like free things that have, I don't know. But anyways, <laughs> rules for diving. Don't make a mess. It's rude. Um, sure. Yeah. Untie the bag and then retie it rather than cutting it open. Uh, don't go in a compactor. Don't break locks and don't trespass. That's basically it. You can basically go into any dumpster. But as Kristen and I, I mean, I don't know if we were surprised by this, 
But none of the dumpsters we looked in had anything interesting. It's mostly just gross and wet. Yep. It's real stinky. We also didn't open any bags because... We're cowards. Yeah, we're cowards. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe there was nice stuff we just didn't find. I don't... I don't know. I don't know. Uh, But there are places that, like, a lot of divers might go. So I'll I'll list a few of these places just because I I think it's interesting. So construction sites are a big place people will go. Um, Safety first. I'm not encouraging anyone to go to a construction site. But that's where a lot of divers do go to look for, like, you know, if you need wood or sometimes tools or mm-hmm. maybe you need a new toilet. <laughs> Just there's perfectly good toilets left out, you know? So, totally. Uh, grocery stores are probably the number one. Um, you have to be careful with grocery stores, though, because they will... I mean, a lot of the time the food is in the trash for a reason. So you might think, like, oh, there's a cold bunch of chicken in here so it's probably fine but it's like well maybe it got left out on the counter then they brought it back to the meat department where they could write it off and in that process it went back into the freezer mm. and then it got thrown away i don't know i i know freegans will rescue a lot of meat from dumpsters but i don't think i would do that <laughs> i mean maybe if you're maybe if you're cooking it to an insane degree <laughs> It's up to your personal risk standards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, your smell test is usually pretty good, I guess, but also careful. Careful. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, I, I saw one person, because there's like the, all these communities on Reddit and Facebook that you can find, and there's people who are like, oh, I rescued some crackers and it gave me diarrhea. So oh. it's like, well, uh, another place that, I mean, the thing about grocery stores, right, is that you can always ask them. So if you go at the end of the day and you see them throwing stuff away, you can strike up a conversation. There's places where like uh, divers have built a relationship with mm-hmm. these stores. And so they'll leave the food out for them. Or And one person that we saw did offer to give us food when we were there. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> that was an awkward interaction because we didn't want to explain what we were doing, but we also didn't want to take food that could potentially go to somebody else. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Also, I just... Uh didn't want to have conversations while we were in people's dumpsters. (laughs) But yeah, another great place is bakeries. We tried a couple bakeries. No luck for us, but they're usually places where you can find like perfectly fine bread that they can't sell the next day because Mm -hmm. they're only selling fresh stuff. Retailers, especially electronic stores, speaking as someone who used to work at a lot of electronic stores, I can attest to this. Perfectly good electronics get thrown away all the time because they have been returned open boxed, especially like headphones. Mm. You can't resell a pair of open headphones. You can't resell uh, like a hard drive. Mm. So yeah, a lot of stuff goes into the dumpsters, especially like just cables. You need a cable? Go get it. Like, <laughs> you don't pay $20 for an HDMI cable. They get thrown away all the time. Like <laughs> Totally, totally. Another good... A place to go is colleges or universities at the end of the year when all of the students are moving out. They can't take all their stuff. You can get furniture that way. I'm realizing that I haven't technically dumpster dived, but I have gotten some primo uh, furniture from sidewalks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Apartments on the first or last day of the month, which is move out day usually. Florists, if you want to get some like nice flowers at the end of the day that are maybe not like the freshest, but they're not like the worst. Ask at markets. Mm-hmm. So you can always talk to the vendors at markets like, hey, are you going to throw any of this away at the end of the day? Can I come back for it? Um, or if you are if you go back at the end of the day and you see them throwing it away, you can ask or you can just wait. Yeah, one thing that I don't think you've mentioned, but and it also seems kind of obvious, but I did not know this, um, is that the best time to go is like closing time. Yeah. <laughs> Nighttime. 
<laughs> yeah, when things are being thrown away. Yeah. So if you're a night owl, this might be a great hobby for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, uh, CSAs. So mm. what are they? What does that stand for again? Community supported agriculture. Yes. Yeah. Ooh, I was quizzing you in the past. <laughs> no, I forgot. So community supported <laughs> agriculture. That's where you can like order meal kits from farms, basically, and they just send you fresh produce. Uh, sometimes they'll have a bunch uh, that people forget that they've ordered. So if you go to the CSA pickup location at the end of the day and people haven't picked up their boxes, then you can maybe grab a fresh box for free. And that's not even dumpster diving. That's just smart. (laughs) Uh, So why do people dumpster dive? Well, sometimes it's economical. Like sometimes people just don't have a choice. Sometimes it's for the the thrill of it, the adventure. I have a friend who um, is obsessed with his metal detector. And... (laughs) And he just goes out for days at a time with his metal detector and he rescues just like, to me, it's trash. But to him, it's like, oh, look at this button from like this settler that got dropped, you know, uh, 60 years ago. And it's like, and it's like, cool, man. So some, for some people, it's just, it's not about the stuff you find. It's about the thrill of the find, you know? Sometimes it's for a podcast. <laughs> Sometimes it's for a podcast. Sometimes it's to go green, you know? It's, totally. It's, like, it's uh, that idea that like, oh, I'll only eat meat if it was going to get thrown away, you know? Mm-hmm. The downsides are, of course, that it's super gross, stinky and wet. It's also a great way to get some outdoors time, though. <laughs> we did have a wonderful two-hour walk. We did. It was, it was like great. a nice night outside. <laughs> we got to pet a dog. It was great. Did we? Yeah. In that uh, weed shop we stopped in. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I was we were walking past one of my favorite weed stores, and I was like, I want to not go home empty-handed. So we walked in there, and I bought weed, and there was a dog. <laughs> there was a delightful dog. I had a great time. <laughs> Perfect. Yep, that's all I got. <laughs> Well, I mean, we've learned some things today about food insecurity. We've learned about food waste and uh, how you can take strategies of resistance. Maybe listeners are going to go full freaking after this. Maybe you'll just donate to a community fridge. But I can't recommend dumpster diving. But if you're into it, like, <laughs> go hard. <laughs> it's not for me, I don't think. I have this image of myself that I wish I, I wish I could be the kind of like granola hippie that does this kind of stuff, and it just. I disappoint myself by finding out that's really not me. Well, maybe when we're older. I find, like, the the hardest core hippies are the older people, right? Totally, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I find the older I get, the less I care about things. So maybe, you know, it's it's in our future. Maybe. We'll see. (laughs) Fabulous. Well, if listeners decide to go dumpster diving, you can let us know, please, at the podcast on Twitter. (laughs) Show us what you find. Yes, we didn't find anything good. We did pet a dog. (laughs) And stay tuned for a couple more upcoming episodes on the food waste problem. Because it, it, it deserves more than one. So. Yes. Yeah.